trumpets there. Monday is Feast of Trumpets. I've been looking forward to this for a long time now. And uh, we'll be meeting up at Zion Lodge. <clears throat> As I already mentioned, the red parking stickers. Uh, we will try our best to get a broadcast by telephone out of there. Uh, we'll have to do it by cell phone, but we do have an amplifier uh, for cell phones that seems to make it uh, enough bars that we can get out and hopefully not have it cut off during the sermon. So we'll plan on that, and I believe the service was at 1 o'clock, as I recall. 1 o'clock on Monday at Zion Lodge. We will only have the one service <clears throat> because of where we're meeting and the circumstance. And then afterward, a picnic-style meal uh, over at Springdale Park there above the library where we have met for several events. So that's for Monday. And then Tuesday, Wednesday on the 19th uh, is the fast of the seventh month. That commemorates the time when uh, Judah had just been taken into captivity and Nebuchadnezzar had left an Israelite, Gedaliah, in charge and his own people killed him. So it was a pretty dark day in uh, the annals of the tribe of Judah and of Israel as a whole, really. And I think that there is a special <coughs> meaning here at the end time as well. Uh, Micah 4 makes it clear that our king is dead, our counselor has perished, and I have no doubt that is talking about Herbert Armstrong. And the church has been in disarray and confusion and division ever since. So, without leadership, and Isaiah 51, I think it is, makes it very clear that there was no son among those whom she had raised up, or who had been converted, who could lead her, and that the young men don't know what they're doing, and so on. So, we're looking to a time when uh, God will again provide the leadership that the whole church can look to if they so choose to do. Now, we already know it's very clear that only a remnant will return. And even with the two witnesses in place, only 10% of the church will respond. But the leadership will be there for those who are stirred to come and have the right attitude. So, uh, we are looking again for leadership to be restored in a way that the church can see if they so choose to do. So I think that this fast coming up is very, very important for us. If I think of it, I'll have maybe a few comments at the end of the sermon about that. Uh, if I think of it, if I don't, maybe somebody raise their hand, because uh, I think it would fit better at the end than here to make further comment. But then atonement, of course, is September 26th, <clears throat> and we'll hold that right here. Just the one service again. I think I put it at one o'clock. Uh, then the Feast of Tabernacles begins October 1st. We're the same year as the Jewish calendar this year because they happened to get it right and didn't postpone it a day or two. So we're having it the same time as most of the rest of the churches and the Jews this year. Things are coming along nicely in terms of uh, preparations. Uh, the the uh, shower units are almost done. We have the porta potties on site, having been cleaned up, and uh, 
a lot of preparations are being made by various ones, social events and so on, so our, our heads and our emotions, I think, are getting more into it. Maybe I'll have a bit to say about that later, but for now, let's go. I feel very compelled for several reasons to finish the book of Psalms today because there's a very powerful and positive message here in these last few chapters that could bode us well in the coming days and weeks if we pay particular heed to them. I did have opportunity this week to get away for a few days up into the woods and I'm beginning to collate and work on and organize the information about the promised land, about Jerusalem, about the Middle East and so on. And I, I essentially have to get away from here to do it. I, uh, I have a problem. It's hard for me to sit at a desk and do all that when there's things out here that need done. I'd much rather be outside working and doing things than I had be sitting looking at books and papers. But if I get away from here, then I can settle down and concentrate. So I had a good four days and I think got a lot done. And did a lot of studying as well, and, and I think have a few insights that perhaps I didn't have as clearly before, and we'll hear some of those things in the next days and weeks. But for today, this has been, I know, a very long series in the Psalms. There's a great deal here, starting with the beginning of them, the five books of the Psalms as they've been divided, which show man and man's problems and man's difficulties, and throughout then, uh, people pleading to God and looking to God, uh, much about the way to handle adversity and difficulties and so on is contained within this book. And then when we get to this last book, and especially the last few chapters of it, as we did last time, uh, it becomes very encouraging because it's very prophetic for the time just ahead of us and where we are right now in prophecy, I think. So, let's finish this today, uh, one way or another, get through it. We came down to chapter 144, so we only have seven to go to finish it up, and some of them are short. But it is a very, very encouraging area, and I think it is important to wrap it up before Trumpet's Atonement and the Feast, because it will put us in the right kind of positive frame of mind that we need as we enter this season. So in Psalm 144, it says, Blessed be the Eternal, my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Now, our warfare is spiritual very clearly for the most part. Uh, we have to put on the whole armor of God, and we have a fight and a struggle on our hands because Satan does not want to see God's plan finished. He does not want to see the church finish its work. He wants to see the church destroyed when God turns him loose on it at the, the day that the tribulation starts and the church flees to safety. So he is very concerned with destroying us in any way he possibly can. So, what do we do? We say, blessed be the eternal, my strength. And that he is the one, if we read his word, if we pray, which teaches our hands how to war and how to fight the things that we have to fight 
in our own nature and in the world around us. My goodness and my fortress. We have no goodness. We have the expression that is used quite frequently in our nation. People use the term, oh my goodness. Uh, And we don't really have any of that. But God does. And we look to Him for His goodness. And His goodness to flow through us by power of His Spirit so that we can do real good. Now, that doesn't mean that humans don't do a certain amount of good and they can have good works. But is it just human good or is it the good of God motivated by His Spirit? And that's the kind of goodness we want. Because it is not attended by selfishness and our vanity and patting ourselves on our backs for the good things that we might do because it is something that is motivated not by vanity and self, but from God Himself. So it is to His goodness that we look. His goodness will survive forever. Our goodness is momentary and, as I said, often selfish. We do things to be acknowledged, to be noticed, to be patted on the back, to be praised or whatever. Um, And that is not the kind that we're looking for. So He is our goodness and our fortress. He is where we look for protection. My high tower and my deliverer. We know we're entering now, day by day, it's getting much, much worse. A time when the whole Muslim world is being stirred up. A time when we are decidedly going to go into at least Iran and probably Syria to preserve the petrodollar, the American dollar, as the reserve currency of the world. That is being attacked very quickly by countries starting to trade among themselves without the dollar. And it signals the demise of the American dollar and the American economy as we know it and the way of life that we have known. Zephaniah makes it very clear that there is a great crash coming and it is getting very close. Where do we look but to God as our high tower and our strength in these days ahead? My deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust. Our trust has to be in God. I read of Jehoshaphat uh, during this past week. I'll have more to say about the context of that at a later date, but the point is enemies were coming against Israel. It was Ammon and Moab at that time. And God told Jehoshaphat not to worry, but he would take care of them. He says, I want you to go down and watch, but you are not to fight in this battle. And then as he had told Moses at the Red Sea, stand still and see the salvation of the Eternal. So Israel went down, and they stood and they watched. And God caused consternation, confusion among the Moabites and Ammonites, and they killed each other until there was not one man left alive in that army. God was there. And it is His mighty works that we are to remember now and to trust Him as these things come down on us. Who subdues my people under me. So David was king and 
he realized that he could not hold his position even himself without God's help. Because he had enemies in his own household, his own sons, enemies in his army, a lot of people who wanted to see David dead, quite frankly, and who tried to kill him. But God maintained his position and the job that he had given him to do. So it was God's work, not David's, even in his own personal life and his job as a king. So wherever we find ourselves, we have to look to God. Even King David, I say even, especially maybe King David, had to look to God. Now we look upon him as a very important figure in Israel's history, and he indeed was, but only by God's power. After his death, the kingdom split with Rehoboam and Jeroboam very soon after. So God had kept it intact through David's life, and then it split apart. Same with Herbert Armstrong. It had stayed pretty much intact until his death, and then, boom, it blew apart. Well, these things are repeated. And now we're dealing with that which is blown apart and how it is to be fixed. God has talked many times about the healers of the breach between man and God and within the church itself. And he has said if we will serve him, that we can be healers of that breach. So the healing that is coming is not just physical. Physical healing is important. But the spiritual healing and the unity of the church is far more important by comparison. Verse 3, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Who are we? And maybe we should say we here. Who are we? I think God has commissioned us to go up and keep the feast in Jerusalem for the first time in at least 1,700 years. And I take that as a very serious and scary thing to do. I do not by any means feel qualified. Who are we? God has had his face turned from us. We need it turned back to us. And maybe some events need to occur between now and the time of the feast for that to happen. Who knows? What is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you make account of him? Man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passes away. Where would we be, brethren, apart from God? If we didn't know what's coming and a way out of it from God, we would be like the rest of the world, wondering what to do. More and more people are seeing that this world is about to come apart. The wheels are going to come off. And they don't know what to do. They'll save a few cans of beans. They'll buy more ammo. They'll buy silver or gold. They'll do whatever they can, hoping that this trouble that's coming will pass quickly and they can resume their lives. They don't realize that America is done. It's finished. The American way of life is over. We just announced QE3, which is big fancy words for quantitative, quantitative easing, 
which simply means print a lot more money. At least $40 billion a month with no end in sight. And that is going to devalue the dollars you have in your pocket. They'll become worth less and less and less as they print more and more money. And you'll be able to buy less. And you'll certainly have holes in your pockets, as Haggai says. Think it's been bad now? Just wait. Our way of life is done. It's finished. It's over. God has said that. A great crash is coming. Not because we read about what is happening in the nation and the world, but because God told us that ahead of time and we've been expecting it, now it is upon us. It's not like it's coming as any surprise, brethren. It's here. And without God, we would vanish away. How thankful we should be for what we know. Then a plea is made in verse 5. Bow your heavens, O eternal, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. He's talking about end time events here, isn't he? When all those things leading up to the day of the Lord begin to occur. Bow your heavens and come down. And as Christ says there at the end of Zechariah 2, he rises to go about his work to make his holy habitation Jerusalem and Zion and to empower his church to do its work. Cast forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Send your hand from above. Rid me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of strange children. We're going to have UN troops and strange children coming in to kill Americans. And this is prophetic here. This is about what is about to happen. That's why it's at the end of the book of Psalms. Whose mouth speaks vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. They think they're ushering in a 1,000 year millennial reign of their power under Satan. But it's a falsehood not right. It's not going to happen. They'll have about three and a half, well, they'll have a little more than that. They'll have three and a half years of tribulation. But this nation is going down before that, before they have their power all come together for the last 42 months of the times of the Gentiles. This nation goes first. The great whore America will be destroyed first. And that will go on for a few years while we have our work to do, building the temple and Jerusalem, ultimately. And then the new world order will take over for three and a half years before being destroyed at the coming of Christ. Well, that's what this is talking about. Verse 9. I will sing a new song to you, O God. We're getting close to that time of the first resurrection. Then Revelation 2 and 3 talk about singing a new song to God and a song that only those who are resurrected will understand. We're on the final stretch toward that resurrection. It isn't many years away. I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises to you. 
Now, if we be allowed to go up to Jerusalem, which it appears we will, there are many, many scriptures which talk about going up to Jerusalem to sing and clap our hands and enjoy going before God. This is a momentous event that God has allowed us to be part of. That is something to pray about a lot over the next days as we approach that time. That we go accounted worthy. I may have more to say about those, these things on trumpets and atonement to meet in due season. But here he's laying it out, the events that are about to occur. And the attitude that we should go into them with. Singing a song to God. It is he that gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the hurtful sword. We're about to face that again, and God says he's going to give us the kind of leadership that David provided. So our leadership in the future, here in the next few years, is going to be, well, David was a type of what it will be. And that is laid out for us in several different places in the prophecies. Rid me and deliver me from the hand of strange children whose mouth speaks vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. He tells us there in Zechariah 2 to flee from Babylon, to flee to Zion, if you read it in the RSV, to go to God's places of protection here at the end time. To go to the wilderness, as he says in Micah 4. Even in Babylon, but away from it. Away from its right hand. And those strange children that are not godly, that are all around us. <clears throat> Verse 12, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones, polished after the similitude of a palace. Cleansed, prepared, ready to be occupied by Christ. He says he will present his bride without spot, without wrinkle. How is that to be accomplished? We still have spots. We still have wrinkles. We still have human nature and problems and sins and bad attitudes. There are some scriptures that I think are very meaningful right now that I will get to later. Verse 13, that our garners may be full, or our barns or our storehouses, affording all manner of storage, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets. The storehouses of the nation and the world around us are currently being emptied. Any reserves are being eaten up. And we're in severe drought in this country, or in flooding in some cases, either of which destroys food. There are droughts in other countries, major producers around the world. So food is going to be very short, very soon. And a lot of people are going to starve to death. So at a time, right here at the end of Psalms, when mankind is beginning to go without food, we are praying that God fill our storage up that he provide for us, and he's promised he will. 
that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor. What does it say there in Zechariah 2, right here at the end? It says, Jerusalem shall be built as villages or towns without walls, and much men and cattle there. So God is going to bring His remnant together of people, and He's going to provide us with sheep and cattle, just as is laid out right here in this chapter. That the oxen might be strong to labor in what? Producing crops. Oxen plow. That there be no breaking in nor going out. Everything will be safe and secure. That there be no complaining in our streets. Wouldn't that be neat? Or won't that be neat? This is a prophecy. That there be no complaining. Can you even imagine that? In my decades now of experience with human beings and experience with myself, to have a time when there's no complaining, that would be incredible. Wow. Verse 15, Happy is that people that is in such a situation or such a case. Happy is that people whose God is the eternal. He says we'll come before him with happiness and joy and dwell in unity. He says that when the two witnesses and the remnant of the people come together there in Haggai 2.9, that in this place will I bring peace. No complaining, no murmuring, no griping. Joy and happiness. I don't know how to handle it. I hope I'm there to enjoy it. Happy is that people whose God is eternal. When He turns His face back to us and shines His blessing upon us. It isn't far off, brethren. Chapter 145. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Now, David is not blessing God's name forever and ever today, is he? Only through these words. But David's dead, buried. He hasn't gone to heaven yet either. No man has ascended, not even David, it says. He's looking to the resurrection here. This is an end-time prophecy. Because he will extol God forever and ever and bless his name throughout all eternity when he is resurrected. Every day will I bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. David knew about the resurrection. He knew he was going to die. But he knew that ultimately he would praise God forever and ever. You and I are not yet in a position to do that. We can say, I'll praise you till the day I die. But if we have faith and hope in the resurrection, then we can say as he did, I will praise you forever and ever. Through his grace and through his mercy and his salvation. Great is the eternal and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable, unfathomable, beyond our scope of thought. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Now that has been done in part. All through the Bible you have 
a recounting of the Red Sea and all those events of going into the promised land and how God delivered both from the water and from the enemies. And those things have been recounted from generation to generation. But God says the deliverance that he is about to make for you and me and his people is going to be so great that it will pale the Red Sea into insignificance. And I believe that. This is the culmination. This is the last curtain call. This is the final act. Now when you devise a movie, or a play, or whatever kind of event you might be putting on, you want to save the climax for the end. You want to save the most exciting part for the end. And that's what God has done. This that is ahead of us is going to be so exciting and beyond our comprehension that it will be recounted from generation to generation. They'll forget about the Red Sea and they'll talk about what's about to happen to you and me. And they'll declare God's mighty acts. Verse 5, I will speak of the glorious honor of your majesty and of your wondrous works. You want encouraged and inspired? Quit thinking about yourself and think about the wondrous works of God. And that'll get you out of your depression because essentially depression is selfishness. It's what it is. That's what it boils down to. We think about ourselves and woe is me and poor me and all I have to go through and mind is on self. And if mind is on self, duh, (laughs) you'll get depressed because look at you. Look at me. It's depressing to look at ourselves. So, we look to the great wonders and works of God and what He has done and is about to do and what we can do for others to help them get there and bingo... We're not depressed because we're helping and serving and giving and loving others. Let's see, where was I here? Uh, Oh, yeah, speak of His majesty. Verse 6, And men shall speak of the might of your terrible acts, or awesome acts, would be more modern English, and I will declare your greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. These things are going to be so powerful and so compelling that we will have to talk about them. We won't be able to help ourselves. Sometimes it's hard to buy a conversation about God, isn't it? Here even. When these things happen, it won't be hard to find a conversation about God. They'll be on our lips. Verse 7, They shall abundantly utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Eternal is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. We can be thankful for that. But his mercy endures only, or his anger only endures for a moment, and his mercy endures forever. So that's a very encouraging verse in the middle of this. <clears throat> that he is awesome, and he is wonderful, and he's going to do great acts, 
But thankfully, His mercy and His forgiveness are there so that we can be a part of that and be a part of the tool to do the work that He has to do here at the end. The Eternal is good to all, and His tender mercy are over all His works. Now, He hasn't been good to all, overall, has He, yet? Mankind is still living in a very terrible situation. But this is an end-time prophecy, and we're right on the edge, and certainly as we go into the Feast of Tabernacles, a time when God is going to show His mercy and forgiveness to all, and to open salvation to all mankind in the Millennium and Great White Throne Judgment. He sent His Son because He loved everybody and wants them all to have salvation. And we're getting near the time when it is going to be offered to the dead, small and great, and even those who live through the horror to come into the millennium. So his good will then extend to all. So this is a prophetic statement. And his tender mercy over all his works, all mankind, all the work that he has done, not just us, not just a few, not just the church, but to all mankind. Uh, verse 10, all your works shall praise you. That is, all human beings ultimately will praise God. And your saints shall bless you. Won't it be nice, instead of praying for deliverance, praying for help, praying for mercy, won't it be nice to say, blessed be God who has delivered us. Wow, what a change. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. He's going to do such majestic things that people will be so excited about what God has done. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Now, it's almost upon us. And we have been given opportunity, brethren, over the next few years to live in a situation where we will have our own vine and fig tree. We will not have weeds and briars and barbs and thorns. We will have blessings abundant, and it will be a microcosm of the world tomorrow to show the world what it's like to come under the blessing of God instead of the leadership and rule of the beast. God has set that up, and it will be our job to show mankind the majesty of God's kingdom as it will soon be established. It will be done in a small way with those who are faithful here at the end. We have much ahead of us, and we don't have much time to get it done, I'll tell you that. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The eternal upholds all that fall and raises up all those that bow down. So everyone is going to have a chance, an opportunity, to be part of the kingdom of God. Our chance is now. Others will have it in the millennium and great white throne judgment. But everyone will have a chance. No one, in that sense, 
is lost just because they lived and died without conversion. And we don't have to go get baptized for the dead because they didn't get baptized and therefore they're lost. And all this baloney that goes through Protestantism and Mormonism and all the religions of the world that are satanic in their derivation. Verse 15, The eyes of all wait upon you, and you give them their meat in due season. There is a set time to favor Jerusalem. Now I ask you, after all these years, is God commissioning us or motivating us, compelling us to go there and to keep His feast in the manner that it was actually written? Is that important? Is that in due season? Has the set time come to favor Jerusalem? Has the set time come, maybe, to favor His people? To allow them to go there? To allow them to worship the King at Jerusalem for the first time in nearly 2,000 years? That's hard to digest. It's hard to get your mind around. It's hard to recognize the importance thereof. I don't expect things to keep going on as they have been year after year after year. I expect some big changes very soon. I don't know how soon, and I'm not setting dates. But if God has chosen to favor Jerusalem with the presence of His saints, something big is afoot, and it isn't too far away. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. We are only a few years from the time when he opens his hand and blesses the entire earth. Man, woman, child, bird, fish, and animal. And all creation will be vibrant and alive from God. The eternal is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The eternal is near to all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. It's one thing to holler out for God, it's another thing to do it in truth. The truth will make us free. So let's cry out to God in truth, and he will hear. He will be near. He says he's going to come dwell with us at Jerusalem. Whether visibly or not, I do not know, but that's in, Ze it's in Zechariah 2, into the chapter, and it's introducing the two witnesses and the remnant of the church at the end time where he says it. It's not millennial, it's not great white throne judgment, it's just prior to the culmination of all these latter day things. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. What's our desire? Peace, safety, protection, unity, harmony, blessing from God. Those are our hopes. Those are our dreams. Eternal life. We're on the edge of it. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. How many times have I quoted Isaiah where he says, 
that he will answer and hear our cry and our plea before the flesh fail before him. We have had deaths. We have sickness. We have falling away throughout the church of God. How long before the flesh literally would fail before him? He even says it will come right up to that point, that there will be old men, doesn't imply many, but just old men who have seen the the former temple and the latter temple in its glory. So just before this generation die out that he started calling back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, this will all happen. And I'll guarantee you, anybody who had adult eyes in 1950 is getting pretty old today. And you look at the obituary column in the journal or the United Paper or whatever paper you might see, and each one has several that have died, and they're not being replenished. There aren't new people being called, just very, very few at the 11th hour. Not very many. They're certainly not replenishing those that are dying and falling away. So this can't be very far away. He will fulfill our desire and will hear our cry and will save us. The Eternal preserves all them that love Him, but all the wicked will He destroy. There it is. We need to serve Him and love Him, which means obey Him. This is the love of God that you keep His commandments. Verse 21, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Eternal, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Instead of complaining about each other, we'll start blessing God. What a change that will be. What a wonderful change that will be. Psalm 146, Praise ye the Eternal, praise the Eternal, O my soul. While I live, will I praise the Eternal. I will sing praises to my God while I have any being, any breath of life. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. No Democrat, no Republican, no Independent, no nothing is going to save us. The die is cast. God is going to punish the world. And only He can save us out of what is just ahead and around the corner. Verse 4, his breath goes forth, he returns to his earth. Mankind's going to die. They're not going to be able to save us. In that very day, his thoughts perish. He doesn't go to heaven and keep thinking. His thoughts perish. As Ecclesiastes 9.5, I think it is, says, the dead know nothing. So your thoughts perish when you die. You were quiet until the resurrection. Happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the eternal his God. Thankfully, we do have those promises of the God of Jacob blessing us and protecting us. The one which made heaven and earth to the sea and all that therein is, which keeps truth forever, which executes judgment for the oppressed, which gives food to the hungry, The Eternal loosens, or turns loose, the prisoners. The Eternal opens the eyes of the blind. Remember Isaiah 35? The blind are going to see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the sick be restored. Before the millennium, 
and then for everyone at the beginning of the millennium. He says, in Hosea 6.2, that at the end of two days, he will revive us. And in the third day, he will let us walk in his sight. It's been almost 2,000 years since Christ walked this earth. And at the end of the second day, a thousand years being as a day, we will be revived. The earth will be restored in the beginning of the third day, or the seventh day, if you care to consider it about the 4,000 years before Christ was here. So four and six, or four and two make six, the days of man, and then the millennial rest of Hebrews 4 will come at the beginning of the millennium. It isn't far off. I won't get into speculation, but it's near. Now, where was I here? Uh, Verse 9, The Eternal preserves the strangers, relieves the fatherless and the widow. And he tells us that in Isaiah and in Zechariah and many, many other places, that we are to take care of the widow and the orphan and not to oppress and not to hurt anyone and to treat each other with love as neighbors. Uh, He says, I'm going to do that. He tells us to do that in the end time instruction. The eternal shall reign forever, ever, even your God, O Zion, unto all generations, praise you the eternal. We are in type, Zion is a church, Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, as we've read many times, and will be taken to physical Zion and Jerusalem, and there will be the headquarters of God's kingdom beginning with the millennium. 147, praise you the eternal, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely or beautiful or in order. The eternal does build up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Daniel 9 says that he will build or cause Jerusalem to be builded within 70 weeks and then the abomination will be set up and the church will flee. This is a prophecy about Jerusalem being built up in her own place, as as, uh, Zechariah 14 says, and the gathering of the remnant of the church. The gathering of all Israel, the beginning of the millennium, will be the duality of that prophecy, but the gathering of Haggai will precede it, 10% of the church. He heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. There are a lot of people in the church who are brokenhearted and wounded. And he is going to give them an answer. He's going to give them opportunity. And they're going to come together with joy to build his temple and to restore Jerusalem, as it says here. He tells the number of the stars. He calls them all by their names. Though so it says Jerusalem's going to be built. It says he's going to gather. And you might say, oh yeah, how can he do that? Well, okay. Back up, he numbers and counts and names the stars. Great is our Lord, and of great power. His understanding is infinite, without end. He knows the hearts, and he will stir people to come and to build Jerusalem. The Eternal lifts up the meek. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Humble, 
meek, he is drawn to. Proud, self-righteous, he despises. Sing to the Eternal with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God, who covers the heaven with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow upon the mountains. Now, we haven't seen Isaiah 35, really, but, boy, we've had a lot of rain this summer out here. Much of the country is in drought. I was driving yesterday, just looking out across the wilderness, the desert, and it's green. Beautiful, pale green from all the rain that we've been having. What will it be like when it blooms as a rose? Maybe we're getting close to that. He's going to bless this area, and yet much of the nation is in drought or in flood, or in some kind of weather that's destroying what they have. Right now, this is causing our weeds to grow. But soon, God is going to make a difference, and the weeds will disappear, and grass and succulent, wonderful things will grow. I look forward to that day. Verse 9, He gives to the beast his food, and to the young ravens which cry. He delights not in the strength of the horse. He takes not pleasure in the legs of a man. What is there there? The eternal takes pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. So it isn't to the strong. It isn't to the proud. Doesn't he even tell Zerubbabel there in Zechariah 4, not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, says the eternal. So he doesn't take pleasure in how young and strong and beautiful and all those things we might be. He takes pleasure in those that fear him. Praise the Eternal, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. Now, I do that. You do that to a degree, don't we? And yet, how much easier that's going to be made when these things begin to happen. All these things that we've been reading about now for, well, since 96 in my experience, and you in varying degrees from what you've heard and seen on tapes and in live sermons. And yet it's gotten to the point sometimes that it gets discouraging or frustrating or why isn't it here or how long do we have to wait. So it's hard to praise God in unbridled strength and joy because we've not seen our dreams and hopes fulfilled as yet in the way that he keeps saying it will happen. But how it will turn when it begins to happen. Verse 13, For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. What a wonderful thing that will be. He makes peace in your borders. When does he say he'll do that again? Haggai 2.9 when the remnant comes together with the leadership. The leadership that Gedaliah represents in type that will be restored. Wouldn't it be nice? We got the fast of the seventh month coming up. We got Feast of Trumpets, that's a feast day. We got Atonement, that's a fast day. And right on before atonement, we have yet another fast day of the death of Gedaliah 
and our lack of leadership. Now, he tells us in Zechariah that someday those fasts will be turned into feasts of joy. I look forward, brethren, to one day saying, we're not going to fast today, we are going to feast. Instead of staying home and brushing your teeth and getting a headache, come, we are going to have a potluck like you have never seen before, in a feast of joy. How neat it would be, two days from now, to see God's hand and to say, let's feast on the 19th instead of fast. Now, that's not a prediction. That's not a prophecy. But it is going to happen soon. I had much rather fast and laugh and sing than I had to fast. Much rather. It's coming soon to a delicatessen near you. Let us pray that it be soon. Very soon. The world around us is about to fall apart. Our nation is about to fall apart. And God's deliverance cannot be far from that, or we will be taken down with it. So I know it's coming soon. I don't know exactly how soon. But I look forward to making that announcement when the time comes. Now, those are some of the things I thought I might say at the end, but... I'm saying them now because it just kind of came up in the context. Let's see. Uh, verse 14, He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest of, of the wheat. The wheat crop in this country is failing this year. The corn, the soy, everything. In great part because of droughts. But he's promising us that he'll fill us up. He sent forth his commandment upon earth. His word runs very swiftly. When he decides to do this, it's going to happen very swiftly, brethren. It'll take our breath. He says there in Zechariah 3, he'll remove our sins in one day. He says they'll evaporate like a cloud there in Isaiah 44. But these things are going to come very, very suddenly when they begin to happen. They run swiftly. He gives snow like wool. Wool covers you. He'll give snow, rain, the things that make things grow very quickly. He scatters the hoarfrost like ashes. He casts forth, cast forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? If he decides to turn the weather down and make things cold... Who's going to stand before that? God controls the weather is what he's saying. The weather is bad across this country and around this world now in many respects. And that is going to lead to drought and famine and pestilence and death. God can send whatever weather he wants. 
And he is sending drought and famine right now upon the earth. But he's promised to send us the fat things if we will serve him. He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He could do that at his whim. He says the rivers will run and the springs in the desert. But that part which has been verdant and watered and productive will become drought. He's going to turn it just the opposite of the way it's been. This is the God that's about to do this. This is the God that's already starting to do this. You don't see green in Iowa, but you see it in Arizona. Isn't that wild and weird for this time of year? Usually here, everything's all dried up by now. Not this year. Don't know if that means anything, but I find it interesting. He shows his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. It's all about God's word in his way and living that way. He's speaking of spiritual Israel here because he's not showing it to physical Israel right now. He will in the millennium, but not until. He has not so dealt with any nation. Not like he has with us. And not like he's going to with us. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise you, the eternal. They won't know the good judgments of God, but we will. This is written to the church. Psalm 148. I need to hurry, don't I? See, we started at one, didn't we? Eh, I got a little time yet. Praise you the eternal, chapter 148. Praise you the eternal from the heavens and praise him in the heights. We sing this one in our hymn book. Praise him, all his angels. Praise you him, all his hosts. Praise him, you sun, moon, and stars in the heights, as we say it. <laughs> praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters that be above the heavens. There used to be a canopy of water, apparently, and I think this tells you that before the flood of Noah uh, that blocked the powerful rays of the sun that do harm. And that canopy of water came down at the time of the flood and hasn't been there since. It protected mankind from radioactivity and a lot of different things, and they lived to be about a thousand years of age. That changed. So there was a canopy of water up here, according to this, above the heavens, above the sky, if you will. Um, verse 5, Let them praise the name of the Eternal, for He commanded, and they were created. goes right back to creation. Look to God, who made all this wondrous world we have around us. He has also established them forever and ever. This earth is never going to go away, in spite of old worldwide doctrine that is going to be charred and redone. It's going to be here forever and ever. He has made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Eternal from the earth, you dragons and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling His word. He controls all these things. Mountains and all hills, fruitful trees, all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Eternal, for His name alone is excellent. His glory is above the heaven or the earth and heaven. Wow, is this powerful or what? He also exalts the horn of His people. 
He's going to raise our stock in the world. The praise of all His saints, even of the children of Israel, a people near to Him, praise you the Eternal. It says there in Isaiah 7 or 8 about how we need to be wait, wait and be patient for God. And then Isaiah says, I will look for Him. We're to search for Him as we would silver and gold and precious things. Psalm 149. Praise you the Eternal. Sing to the Eternal a new song. He said that a little earlier. We'll have a new song, but only the righteous, only the bridemaid, I mean not the bridesmaid, but the bride can sing. There in Revelation 2 and 3. Sing a new song and His praise in the congregation of saints. In a sense, we'll do that when this turnaround comes. We'll sing a different type of song. We'll sing with more joy, with more happiness, with more volume, with more enthusiasm than we sing today. Because we will have seen these things happen. Let Israel rejoice in Him that made Him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their King. He's coming to dwell with us, brethren, very shortly. Even before His return to the earth in glory. He says, I will come and dwell with you. Again, I didn't say that that would be visible, but he will be there. Instead of having his face turned from us, he will be there dwelling with us and smiling upon us. <laughs> Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. I guess we're going to dance a jig and sing and all of those things in a way that our staid American culture would not normally allow us. Even David got in trouble when his kilt flew up and he was out dancing and singing when the ark came back. We're going to dance and sing before God. For the Eternal takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. So this chapter, or this book, is culminating in the joy that comes soon upon us and in the resurrection and eternal life and joy in God and in His presence forevermore. <coughs> Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Do you ever lay in bed and sing? I snore, but I don't sing. I'd probably get kicked out for singing as much as snoring. I don't know. But it's talking about a time where it doesn't matter, day or night, we're going to have the praises of God upon our lips. He will be the focus of our joy. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. The Word of God is a two-edged sword. That's the word that we need to have. That's a word we're reading today. Isn't this exciting to read? It is to me. To execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. Won't it be nice when the evil rulers of this world and the basest of men that God has placed there, He takes by the scruff of the neck and binds and or kills, and or brings them up in the great white throne, and then says, all right, now boys, we're going to do things differently now. 
I look forward to the day when the present leadership of this world is gone. That's what he's talking about. To execute upon them the judgment written. It isn't vengeance here. It's let's get rid of all the evil and replace it with the good and then bring these people back up and teach them the truth. To execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. Doesn't it say that we'll be ruling with him? Revelation 5.10 will be kings and priests upon this earth. So this is talking about the beginning of the millennium when we will be leading, guiding, will be the teachers, showing them which way to go. And then Psalm 150 to conclude this book in high fashion, if you will, with a lot of encouragement and strength and power. Praise you the Eternal. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Think about all these things we've just read about. About God's deliverance and how He is going to help His people and how He's going to put down Satan and the evil. And how He is going to rule the world in righteousness. And praise Him in the firmament of His power to do these things. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. piece of trumpets is two days away. Maybe we should play some special music with trumpets. Praise Him with the psaltery and harp. Anybody play a harp? Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and organs. I don't know whether we're prepared to dance on trumpets yet or not. Anybody want to come up and do special dance instead of special music? I didn't think so. But there's coming a time, brothers and sisters, when we will not be able to contain ourselves. We will simply jump up and dance in joy. It's coming soon. Praise Him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise Him upon the loud cymbals. Praise Him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Eternal. Praise you, the Lord. It's coming in the millennium, and it's coming soon to those who are faithful to God. as a shadow of things to come, as an example to the world of, way, of the way that things should be. We will have peace in our time as human beings before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And we will build His temple, the latter temple, both physically and spiritually, I believe. And there is not a lot of time. It has to start soon. I think that we need to be praying as never have we prayed before. I take extremely serious the opportunity to go up to what I believe is the true Jerusalem for the first time in hundreds 
and even almost thousands of years. God has chosen Jerusalem again, as he says in Zechariah 2, the last verse. And he has chosen us to be the ones to go there and keep his feast before him. We cannot take that lightly. This is a historic time. And let us pray that we be accounted worthy to do that. And let us prepare our attitudes and reverence and respect to that holy hill of Jerusalem, barren and desolate though it be today. It will soon have the children playing in the streets. It will soon have a Jerusalem rebuilt in her own place for the first time since its desolation almost 2,000 years ago. What an incredible honor. What a privilege. What a humbling experience to be considered to go there and do that. I feel utterly inadequate. I need God's cleansing on atonement. And His worthiness to go do this. Let us pray and thank God for what we know and the opportunity that is ahead of us. And let's understand it in the power and in the might and in the seriousness of the plan of God and our part in it. And let us look forward to the mighty and wondrous works of God that we read about today and the conclusion of the book of Psalms. Because it's prophetic for you and me. It's for now. And I don't know whether that means this year or next, but it is not far off. So take encouragement in all that we saw today and look forward in reverence and respect to the Almighty God who is again choosing Jerusalem with his set time to favor Jerusalem.